Welcome to today's CritIQ podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. It's fair to say that the 2011 results of the FEAST trial sent shockwaves through the fluid resuscitation community. It's easy for some to dismiss the study as irrelevant to first world practice, but that would be ignoring both the immense contribution to third world health and its impact on the very foundations of our current practice. You see, FEAST challenges the very notion that aggressive fluid bolus therapy in shocked patients is beneficial and highlights how much work we still have to do to understand the use of fluids in the critically ill. Recently, I had the enormous privilege of talking to the lead author of the study, Dr Kath Maitland, about this landmark trial. Kath, you've spent a a great proportion of your career in the developing world. How did you come to be working in centres like that? Um, well, I first started in the uh, in the tropics, um, uh, so to speak, in uh, as, in, uh, in a project at, um, in Vanuatu. Um, I was attached to a um, a project that was um, designed and um, um, and run by David Weatherall, who's a professor of haematology. And the question that we were asking there was whether malaria um, or whether alpha thalassemia that was there in very, very high frequencies in the island population, whether that was protective against malaria. Um, This is the commonest polymorphism, a single polymorphism of mankind. So the idea, the malaria hypothesis suggests that it's it's very high frequencies, although it's clinically asymptomatic, um, uh, has resulted from malaria protection. But we came back with the opposite answer. Uh, we actually showed that they actually got more malaria, particularly vivax. Now, that's actually quite important because vivax doesn't kill you. And there's a very biological plausibility why vivax may have cross-species protection and also may be much more... Um, the, the host population in alpha thalassemia may be more vulnerable. So we had a nature paper from that, um, came back, finished my PhD, wanted to go back out to carry on the malaria research. And, um, so we chose to go to Africa and this, we were a husband and wife partnership, and I really wanted to distinguish my career away from my husband's because everybody was saying, oh, it's very good of you to help your husband with this project. And I'm crikey, <laughs> 50%. Anyhow, so I always knew that I would live under that shadow, not that we had a problem, an internal problem, but it was... Um, uh, so the, the thing that I, I'd kind of really been struck from leaving pedi- um, acute paediatrics and coming back into it to, to finish my training was the, the, the rollout of APLS. I'm not quite sure what it's called in Australia, but, you know, the, the emergency. And I thought this is actually quite impressive. Maybe some of the, the tenements of that, could this be applied to children with severe malaria in Africa? At the time, the mortality was around about 20%. And most children were being described as either cerebral malaria or severe anemia. But no no sort of um, idea of how to manage the child immediately. So I felt if I could bring a project that involved something like that, it might actually make a difference. So one has to do hypothesis-driven research rather than just... So I'll just apply this and see whether it works. So one of the things that had had, um, come out of the work that had been done before I, I, I joined the unit in um, um, the Kemi Wellcome Trust program in, in Khalifi in 2000 was that severe acidosis appeared to be a very key component of children with severe malaria, and it was the largest risk factor for fatal outcome. Um, so rather like you would see in sepsis, um, you'd think, well, maybe you know, this might be due to hypervolemia. Let's go and do the physiology, which is precisely uh, where, where we started. 
So tell me about some of the background work that you and your group did in the lead-up to the FEAST trial. Yes, um, and, uh, and I think probably what people didn't realise is that we did actually do almost 10 years of research before the big trial. We didn't just do this off the back. I mean, it had to, we had to carefully develop each part of the process. And the first thing was to actually show that children with severe malaria particularly had the physiology that looked like um, sepsis, that looked like shock. Um, so we went about certainly conducting uh, large prospective studies describing what you would describe in a critically sick child, the ABCs, and saying, yes, this does really look like hypervolemia. They've got delayed capillary refill. They've got a high creatinine. So all of those things that would tempt you to give a bolus, but what needed to be done was, you know, their the physiology. So we um, started doing some uh, dose-finding studies whilst putting CVPs into the children um, who were acidotic um, um, at admission. And in many children, they were so shut down, we were unable to get CVPs in. But of those that we did, they were, they were, their, C, their opening CVP was between 0 and 2. And this improved with boluses of between 20 and 40 mils per kilo. At the time, we were looking at albumin and saline, but this came up into around about sort of um, 6 to 10 centimetres of um, water. And so we felt comfortable that that, you know, that was a good range for a child who was unventilated. Um, and also we saw their tachycardia improve, their respiratory stress improve, and over time their acidosis improved, so and all, all other features of shock. So we felt very reassured by that data that actually acidosis in, in this group of patients was associated with uh, the, the signs and, and physiological features of shock. Uh, we conducted a whole series of trials that, that, um, looking at the questions. We kind of found how much volume that these children needed, and, and, and the, the, um, we also recorded the safety of this. We, we didn't drown the children. We then looked at the, you know, the, the best fluid. So we looked at all the different colloids and compared them to saline and, and within ourselves, within each other. And, and, and the, the recurrent theme was that albumin seemed to be the colloid that was associated with the, the best outcome. Uh, we actually finally did a, um, a, a meta-analysis, which we published in the BMJ, of all paediatric trials. At the time, there was very few. Most of those had been done in, um, well, they had all been done in developing worlds. Uh, two trials in Bengi, um, in Vietnam, one in one tiny, tiny study in sepsis, and then our, our malaria trial. So we brought those together, and, and it, it, we felt fairly confident that although they had they were diverse and we couldn't really get a, a summary of all of them. It started to point to see that colloids appeared to be, in particular the albumin, seemed to be the better fluid to give compared to any other. Now, before we come to the trial itself, a lot has been made of the, the, the fact that you were able to conduct a large-scale randomised controlled trial in, in that environment. Do you think that, the, um, that that reaction has been overplayed or do you think that the challenges meet that reputation? Um, I think um, as long as you try and do things responsibly and ask a question that needed to be asked. I didn't do the trial by myself. I had to have all of the uh, PIs, the African PIs from six centres behind me. If, if they weren't behind me and thought that this was a really important question that they really wanted to know the answer to, we would have done a very bad trial because they wouldn't have wanted to enrol patients. There would have been no genuine... Uh, um, thirst for wanting to know what the answer was. 
Um, at the time when we started the trial, most children were not receiving fluid boluses. So you can show very convincing data of CVPs and they get better and the heart rate gets better. But the doctors still were saying, we're not quite sure whether this is safe in my environment. You've done them on your, on your uh, unit in Khalifi where you've got a, it's a high dependency unit. It doesn't have ventilation, but at least you have a, a very good nurse to patient um, ratio. We're concerned about doing this in our general paediatric wards where most children will be managed. Um, will this be safe? So it was a question that they really wanted to know the answer to. Um, we invested extremely heavily in training. We felt that that was um, to ensure that the right patients in the, um, the trial, the, the right patients for the trial were enrolled, but also to, un to make sure that doctors could actually detect the adverse, uh, potentially the adverse um, side effects of fluids. Um, cardio, cardiac failure, pulmonary edema, uh, brain swelling. Um, and so a lot of training went into that. Um, and so that not just benefited patients in the FEAST trial, but they benefited all critically sick children coming into these six sites. Running a big uh, multinational uh, randomised control trial is obviously full of logistical conundrums. Was there anything specific to the environment that you were operating in that made it more challenging, do you think? Um, I think... The major challenge was there was nothing like this. There was no off-the-shelf sort of, oh, it's all been done before. We had to do it. We had to sort of look at every aspect of the design and look at every aspect of how we were going to do the trial and what were the challenges um, to conducting a high-quality trial. Um, so we've talked a lot about training, and that was absolutely key. So it wasn't a one-stop shop. We, keep, we had a, um, um, a consultant paediatrician who went round um, and trained, um, retrained the sites um, over the two years. So that was, we felt, that was absolutely critical um, to ensure that there was adherence to the protocol. Um, listening to what the feedback from the, 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 the African PIs, the co-investigators, co obviously listening to their concerns and responding to them responsibly. Um, um, but also um, ensuring that we had uh, that it was being run at a very high quality because uh, we, want, we knew that, that it took years to get funding for this trial and we wanted to do a, a trial that was really going to answer the question. So we, um, we employed two full-time monitors that, um, that went around every single month and did 100% source document monitoring. So it meant that there was no wiggle room for any of the investigators. Um, and that, that, having you all work audited in that way it was to begin with they found quite tough um, and but we did say that this is all we're just trying to find out is that have you followed the protocol and I think quite a lot of people felt well they couldn't have really followed that protocol but they did because they knew if they didn't there'd be a flag so I think everybody worked together as a team having lots of meetings as well where the teams from six sites not all of them because we couldn't afford that but represent and from the nursing staff as well as the doctors came together and people started to compete saying our site's better at this than your site and that, that camaraderie that built up around we were like a family um, and I think that that's absolutely critical to success of making people feel that they were not just struggling in their own district hospital that actually other people were having the same challenges so specifically to the trial design we recognised that we couldn't do this trial without an emergency consent procedure. So we really um, 
argued quite strongly and put a very strong case for that it is, not, it is absolutely inhumane to ask a mother who's just brought their child who's dying in front of them to listen to you know, a long, long consent form that talks about albumin and saline, and, and, and they just want you to make their child better. They're not listening whether this is research or not. But so we tried to ensure that they understood there was a research project going on. They could say yes or no now, um, and that if they said yes now, they could say no later. And this would not affect your trial, you know, your child's treatment. Can we proceed? So they're the really key aspects of why you do consent, and that was just delivered all, uh, verbally. To, so the sickets of children were enrolled in the trial. For those who aren't familiar with FEAST, can you briefly run through what your hypothesis was and going into the trial and what uh, or how the trial was set up? So, <clears throat> so we had obviously done a, quite a lot of work looking at uh, managing children with severe malaria and showing that comparing two different fluids that, you know, they looked like there was a better outcome. But what we'd never done was a controlled trial to say, well, actually, is this better than not giving a bolus? And that was an important question because, um, just going back to what I said before, doctors weren't giving boluses at that point in time. So that's why we have no bolus, because that represented the, the baseline, the standard of care. Um, and doctors were very anxious about giving boluses. They hadn't been doing it before, apart from rehydrating children with gastroenteritis. It wasn't common practice. But we also knew that there was going to be an imminent rollout of an ETAT program, which is the same to APLS, um, that they was going to start recommending giving boluses to children without the appropriate evidence. Um, talking about evidence, if you go back and look at the evidence for management of paediatric shock worldwide, it is very, very poor. It's that uh, there are very well. There's, as I said, there's no trials that have been done outside of Vietnam, India, or, or Kenya before we did the feast trial. Um, and the only studies that have been done that really informed the guidelines was in a single academic centre in America. It was retrospective and uh, and with a whole host of biases, and yet this became standard standard of care. So we wanted to try and move Africa from i.e. not giving bolus, somewhere closer to what was happening elsewhere. Because we thought it, it, um, fluid boluses, looking at the physiology, um, the correction of shock, it looked like it was the right uh, thing to do. So we needed to understand how much benefit by giving fluid boluses would, would that, um, would that oh, life saved in terms of 48-hour mortality and 28-day mortality. The other hypothesis was which was the best fluid. Albumin appeared to be better in the, uh, the uh, trials going preceding that, but standard fluid that would be available was saline. So when a patient arrives in an emergency room, it, they are totally undifferentiated. So we wanted to make it a very practical trial where you didn't have to define certain subgroups before we even started. So we enrolled as many children that, that were eligible and only excluded very small subgroups, um, gastroenteritis, because it was not relevant, giving albumin is not relevant in that, and severe malnutrition, because giving any fluids is very controversial, um, and um, surgical or burns cases. So they were not in the trial, and they could be easily differentiated at the, at the, at the point of admission. Um, whereas any other feb, you know, acute severe febrile illness was really included, and so that was an important component of the design. Um, 
the, we, we started off giving, so, and, and also the other thing was that we, we wanted to ensure, because all of these hospitals did not have access to ventilation, so the initial bolus in the, uh, the albumin and saline arm was 20 mils per kilo, so we started off with that, and obviously maintenance-only fluid for the control arm. Across the whole trial, all children received the same standard of care, so there was no difference in care, that that was standardised across all of the children. At one hour, the children were reassessed, and those in the bolus arms, if they still had shock, they would receive another bolus. And again, the, 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 the um, control just continued on. The only reason for that, the control children to receive a bolus is if they develop very severe hypertension. Um, and so, so we were quite reassured by the fact that everybody followed the... The, the strategies and also looking at the data it appeared that there was a very very clear um, a gap in, in the order the difference between the, the bolus arms and the control arms in, in the volumes that were received um, early in the trial. Um, so we had anticipated and it, the design was that uh, one arm, an inferior arm would be dropped and one would continue on answer, answering whatever remaining question was and we had anticipated uh, during the interim analyses, because we had an early interim analysis, because I think a lot of people were concerned that control arms might not be doing well, um, and the, the DM said, well, say, said, carry on. So after three DMCs, um, we were getting a bit anxious because they kept on saying, carry on. Um, we were thinking, well, why aren't they dropping the uh, control arms? So we felt that, um, that maybe that, that we that we were probably not giving as much fluid because we realised we, we, we never saw the accumulating data, which I think is, is extremely important. Um, we were only able to see how sick the children were. So a, a sort of, not by arm, but just uh, this, a summary of the children going into trial. So we realised that we got the right group of children in the trial who were terribly sick. And so we felt that perhaps we should be giving more volume to the ones in the bolus. And, and we were concerned that there may be futility at the end of the trial, i.e. that we'd never really answered the question that actually, that we'd actually hadn't given enough to the bolus arms. So we uh, had a protocol amendment and actually increased that initial bolus to 40 mils per kilo. And with the next DMC, uh, they stopped the trial. So you went into the trial uh, with the hypothesis or the, the feeling that bolus therapy was going to improve things and possibly albumin more than others, but that's not what you found, was it? No, no, no. This was two years, two calendar years into the trial. We'd enrolled over 3,000 patients. And to hear a, 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 a data monitoring committee tell us, these are people who never stop trials. They will, they will always go to the end, to, you know, unless you've actually hit that three noughts one, they won't stop a trial. And so for them to say, we're stopping the trial, and then for them to tell me the result, I, I, I was in disbelief. Uh, they, they, first of all, gave me the results of the um, saline versus albumin bolus for their 48-hour um, mortality, which was the primary endpoint of the trial, and said that the mortality in the saline bolus was 10%, uh, 10.5%, and in the albumin bolus, it was 10.6%. So it was clear to me that we weren't going to be showing that albumin was saving lives in Africa compared to the standard of care. Then they told me what the result was in the bolus arms. They said it was 7.3%, uh, and, so, and that was significant. Um, it meant that relative uh, risk, that the 45%... Uh, survival benefit 
um, in those children who received no bolus compared to uh, um, any, any bolus at all, which for me was a huge shock because I thought, well, how did they die? Because we've been very, very rigorous at looking at the adverse events of fluid overload. And we really wasn't, we weren't getting a signal from those, although once again, we didn't see it by arm. We knew that there weren't droves of children developing pulmonary edema or brain swelling or heart failure. We knew that they were relatively isolated, although that every single time point when a doctor went back to check for, back to review the patients, they were always made to fill in whether they had any of the sign, these signs. So we felt quite reassured about the safety of boluses. So for us, this result was inexplicable. So how have you rationalised that uh, quite extraordinary finding? What, um, when you've looked back at the data, what do you feel that the mechanism of injury is? So we obviously wanted to get the paper out as fast as possible because we felt because, you know, fluid boluses were being rolled out in Africa, we had an imperative to get the, the paper into a, uh, a peer-reviewed uh, journal, and we were very lucky to get it into the New England Journal within three months of the, the data stop. Uh, one of the things that we thought about was, well, you know, whether they, these children with a fluid bolus get some sort of reperfusion injury. Um, some catastrophic reperfusion injury because although they weren't dying of what appeared to be pulmonary edema or neuro neurological um, uh, uh, syndromes, that, you know they, they did see there was a very large number of children who were dying in shock. We've done a subsequent um, um, paper that was published earlier this year in BMC Medicine exploring these mechanisms, um, and what what became very obvious. Um, and what is, this is what doctors saw at the bedside. When we asked all the doctors before they got to hear the results, what do you think the results of the trial are? And they all, the doctors and nurses, said, fluid boluses save lives. We saw, we had a moribund patient, we gave them bolus, the shock went away, they woke up, they asked for fluid. You know, they, they, you know we know that, we, that they were safe, and they were absolutely shocked as well. So looking back at our data, uh, because you have a very, very strict analysis plan and then we were in a, in a secondary paper we were allowed to explore more um, um, more, more exploratory paper um, we showed that actually the shock reversal at one hour was much superior in the bolus arms versus the no, um, no bolus arms but what was very important was that actually that did not translate to a mortality benefit so even early shock reversal which is what the, you know what we all try to do that that did not uh, prevent uh, subsequent mortality. Um, we had an endpoint committee that reviewed all um, endpoints by the, um, that were blind, so they didn't know which arm they were in, um, and what appeared what, what uh, appeared to be very very significant is that the bolus arms, although we had early shock reversal, they went back into lethal shock, um, which is often almost immediate, and it was catastrophic. They, they developed signs of, of very, very severe hypertension or just died in sudden shock um, compared to the, the no-bolus arms. Um, so that was the main mechanism of death across all of the patients, but particularly in the, uh, the bolus arms. Those results are quite striking, aren't they? Because that immediate shock reversal is one of the central pillars of our resuscitation practice. Do you have any thoughts on how it should be applied in other contexts? Well, I think 
I mean, I think, well, for, for Africa, I think the, the bonuses, the, the guidelines have to change. So I think that, you know, the, the immediate, with immediate effect that people should not be giving bonuses to African children who have no access to ventilation. Now, everybody's saying, well, because we can ventilate children, adults, you know, we might not see these, these harms. I think it, it definitely should uh, be a pause for, you know, really, what are we doing and what was the evidence uh, for us giving fluid bonuses in the first place. There's been some superb trials that have been conducted by the, um, the ANZICS groups um, over, over time. And they've generated very important information about which fluid is good which, and, and, and in what circumstances. But what they haven't done is done a controlled trial. Um, and I think, I think the world is beginning to understand that uh, fluids are not just... Uh, uh, yeah, although they're given one of the most widely given drugs in, um, uh, in emergency care and critical care, they aren't without side effects. So they should be viewed as a drug with beneficial effects, but also quite harmful effects as well. And I think once, uh, because a lot of the guidelines and, 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 and current has been driven by um, APLS courses and various things that don't even invite people to think about specific patients. It's just go, go, go. Um, and, and often without really fully appreciating the physiology, uh, I think that, that people really do need to start being a, a bit more conservative or at least thinking about, well, you know, this is not just about sick African children, of course. If you give them a fluid bolus, they would die. Um, the, the, this actually has important... Uh, new findings that we need to think about in critical care. Kath, the finding that albumin and saline had an equal effect on mortality uh, seems to be in distinction to your initial work and also to the signal found in the SAFE study where patients with sepsis appeared to do better when given albumin. What, yes. How do you explain that? I don't know because I was very puzzled because we've actually done lots of subgroup stuff because the, the, the really major benefit was in children with uh, neurological impairment at admission. Um, and, uh, a really striking effect, uh, sort of like an 80% improval in survival um, and disability-free survival. Um, so we were quite surprised about that. Um, I can't explain those effects at all. I, I don't know. But there may be, as I say, differences between different albumins across the world um, that might um, explain some of those differences. Finally, Kath is one of the world's uh, leading researchers now in, in fluid resuscitation therapy. What do you feel are the next steps for our understanding of fluid resuscitation? I think rather than um, accepting that there are, you know, Fluids are good for everybody. I think people have to understand, first of all, the physiology for treatment. Obviously, um, there will be groups of ad adults as well as children that will benefit from the fluid boluses. But actually defining who they are, rather than having a one-size-fits-all, I think is absolutely critical. Um, I think from, from working in the places where I'm familiar with working, where there is no access to intensive care, we need to really understand what... You know, if we're going to recommend no boluses, how you know what is the natural history of shock 
managed without fluid boluses and starting to look at the physiology. So we've started to, to do, to, to actually undertake work to actually look at that, looking at the hemodynamics, looking at myocardial function, because that might then help us to understand whether there is another uh, signal that comes from that work suggesting that we might need to give a little bit more liberal fluids and that might be um, in, tied into early use of pressors. Um, we'd seen massive reversal of shock and that might have been harmful where these children went from having cold shock eventually to being very well perfused and, and warm and their capillary refill. And that, that mechanism by itself may be harmful. Um, and whether, you know, it's titrating some things that might improve. We've got a 7% mortality in, in, in those children, whether we can improve it any further. That's in, in the no bolus arms. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.